This is Jan Cox, talk number 2,569, recorded August 25th, 2000. I was personally thinking, again, of how far removed six billion people are and how I still find it to be interesting. And as you should know, when I say interesting, I find it to be more than just a passing intellectual fancy. Uh, and I'm not sure how to explain how I use it, but I'm going to talk about it anyway, and you figure it out. But I do find it useful, very useful. I was considering, again, some of the things one of them I brought up last time, but about how the six million people on this planet, and as you might notice, uh, even if you're a major in math, uh, me as opposed to them, uh, they outnumber me. So any view I have that's in conflict with the six billion other people, uh, I won't admit out front. I'm not trying to hide the fact uh, I am in the minority. So I just want to admit that so that you don't think I'm being pretentious, trying to pull the Dacron over your eyes. Uh, several things. One of them, as I said, I mentioned last time about the voice in the head and that I could force, I could imagine in a real sense the possibility of men taking the, the original, the initial state of becoming conscious where there is indeed the brain, a part of the brain is now what we call talking. God knows what they called it back then. But, well, I guess they had to call it talking because by that point men were talking. They were no longer little grunting homo sapiens, they had to be talking for the brain to ever become conscious. But insofar as the possibility of them taking it to be something outside themselves, such as gods, I didn't point out one of the interesting, broader facts having to do with that, that the rest of humanity, philosophers, religious philosophers, uh, mystical writers, historians in general, something that they, no one has ever pointed out, to my knowledge. And that is the very first literature you find all over the world, from South America to the subcontinent, India, China, the European, the African, and the first Written histories, if you will recall what you've read, the first written histories of all the major cultural racial groupings, their first written histories were always histories of an, an older oral tradition. Now, such as Homer, if you take him as being the, one of the first writers uh, in the Greek epoch, then he was admitting that he was telling tales that he wasn't even sure how they were and that he was weaving them together. Here's the point. The earliest written histories throughout the world and even when the histories are based upon even older oral traditions, what are the first things about? It gets really neat. Gods. But see, now, if I said that and put a tone in my voice like, aha, like something's fishy, that everybody on this planet from one side 
from the west to the east and from the north to the south, no matter who they are, no matter when their cultural or intellectual history seem to have commenced, the first thing they talk about and write about are gods. Aha! What would be the general attitude of the other six billion people on this planet? It certainly wouldn't be what I'm insinuating. Their view would be, well, yeah, that just goes to prove how important God is. And there, as often as the case, there I would stand on my little plot of the planet, and over there is six billion other people. All the intellectuals, the politicians, the priests, the rabbis, the world leaders, the thinkers, the rich, the poor, and then just me. And I might say to them, okay, okay, okay. I knew you were going to say that. But let me ask you this. Out of you six billion, that's a lot of people. If I said, out of all of you, is there one? Is there one person in there amongst you that maybe said, well, yeah, it just proves the importance, the downright, the universal significance and inescapable importance of God. I mean, what do you expect? It'd be the first thing humans write about. And I say, all right, is there one amongst the six billion of you who said that? I'll let that go. Let's don't argue that. But is there one that would even conceive of there could be another possibility? There just that there might be another one, that there is another possible answer. I would not stand there on one foot holding my breath. If you catch my gist. It would strike no human, no ordinary human, would it strike them what I'm insinuating. Or I assume you know that I mean. Because I already brought it out last time and I've mentioned it before. I find it to be strikingly indicative evidence in fact, of what I said of my suspected picture. That's, and that's all it is. Because I don't know. Because the mind can't know anything, if you recall. I've already proven that last week, in case you've forgotten it. But this explanation, this kind of mind experiment, I have found very useful. I'm going to try to make it a little clearer in the, as to how I find such things useful is to realize, as far as I know, I got this on my own. The point being not to impress you or anybody else, because I only would say this to you. But you understand the significance of me saying I got it on my own, is that, again, it's like me and the rest of humanity, or a mind such as wired up such as mine, which I take to be fairly indicative of our sort of per people. I could be wrong, but... At any rate, it's certainly indicative of me. Say, I got you there. Can't argue with that. But that it strikes me, of course, the idea that the reason that the first literature is having to do with God, that that's based on anything real, of course, as you know, uh, I, that's not even worth considering because I know where it came from. It all comes to mind, so it's not a matter of me pondering could they be correct. I know the answer to it. In other words, I know that that is not what happened. So what would be an explanation? 
Why would it be that throughout the world, the first thing when men start, when they become conscious, get a little free time, and they begin to sit around a campfire, we assume, and begin to entertain each other, that they have discovered that the mind will not only help in their survival with the thoughts it has, and the way it can plot and remember, file away useful information, learn from previous actions, not only that, they find as they sit around, the day's over, and they've got a full stomach, and there's nothing to do. They find out that thinking can be downright fun. And they begin to yak. They begin to tell tales. And what are the first tales that we have knowledge of all over the world of gods? Doesn't anybody, I say, find that you know, highly coincidental, again, disregarding the fact that, well... God's, you know, in charge of everything, and he made man, you know, that the first time, as soon as man began to think, of course, God, you know, snuck his presence right in his mind, like, hey, don't forget me. Disregarding, you know, fairy tales, disregarding what that is. What is the other striking possibility? And I say it is that initially, do you enjoy just considering this picture, trying to picture the first people becoming conscious. As I said, even though we went through it as our childhood, I don't know how you would retrieve that and relive it. But to imagine the atoms of all the world's cultures, that one day the brain suddenly fires up and they hear a voice and nobody's there. They've never heard it before. They didn't plan. They had not been sitting around thinking, I wonder if in some way I can make my brain start having thoughts. So you can't start th thinking about having thoughts until you've had thoughts. If you, you see what I mean? Sure you do. It was just simply there. They did not plan to do it. There was not a com hadn't been some com blue ribbon committee working on how can we become conscious? How can we get our brains to start in essence, talking inside of our own heads. It just happened. Why is it that out of six billion people and out of five or six thousand years, according to your view of history of man, more or less recorded or oral history of man, that this had not become some sort of competing view or just become a... Noticeable theory. It's hard to believe that it's never crossed anyone's mind. But if it did, they evidently didn't see fit to try and share it with other, their other their fellow man. Or if they did, then I assume that their fellow man went, "What? You, know, you better watch it. You're offending God." Can you, if you look back and consider, and of course I am insinuating, I find this to be. Very persuasive. And if it's not, if it's not true, it doesn't matter because it's still, I receive benefit from it I find, and I still can find it helpful. I wouldn't be dragging it back on to you people. To consider the role, even though you may forget or even though now you may consider or you never think about religion or God and all those ideas in any serious way. But you've got to consider 
the idea of gods, I mean, what has had a greater impact on man historically than that? In case you've forgotten or never looked at it that way, because if nothing else, let me refer you back to what I just opened up by saying, that the very first histories of every group, race, nationality, culture, epoch, era of man, no matter where you go on this planet, you trace back their, their traditions, their written, and then the written histories referring to earlier oral traditions. And the first ones, they're not fairy tales about star-crossed lovers. They're not tales of warfare, unless it's between gods. It's about gods. The very first thing. So consider the impact. Again, don't let it, don't miss it by you thinking, well, it doesn't have any effect on me. I know better. The history of man. What if it had not occurred that way? How different would be our history? Had not our earliest histories of every group of people on this planet been tied to their idea, their local idea of God, of supernatural force, forces or a force that was kind of a reversed form of anthropomorphism that they pictured an old man. They pictured another human being, but a superhuman being. What if the earliest men, assuming my theory was correct, just for a second, assuming that the earliest men did not hear the voice of consciousness start and then attribute it to spirits, then attribute it to non-tangible forces, and then they named them gods, supernatural, superhuman forces that are mostly invisible. You know, the Greeks had it down pretty good. They seem to have been a nice combination of the metaphysical and the down-in-the-dirt physical because they had it down. They said, of course, the gods were invisible, but they said that they lived up at Mount Olympus about 100 miles outside of Athens. Everybody knew where the mountain was. And so they said, we know where they lived. That's where they all live. And they came up with stories, as you know, about all the marriages and who was related to who and you know, who, who was the latest concubine or conquest that Zeus had taken over and how his wife was always raising hell. And they had all these stories and they'd sit around and talk about them. And the gods lived just about an hour's drive, if you had a good car, from Athens. But, of course, they were invisible. Nobody questioned it. What if they had taken, what if their attitude, man's attitude, toward the voice in his head, toward... Burgeoning consciousness, the initial flowering of consciousness. What if, I'm not going to speculate on another possibility, but what if men had looked at it a different way, called it something else? How different would be our history? I'll have an answer. I don't really have anything in mind. I don't mean that. I'm trying to get you to consider, in a sense, how unstable consciousness is. And that's something I was about to get to. In the last few days, uh, since I started writing that daily feature item on the web, uh, I found that twice I was explaining to the general public, just a half a sentence, but I was explaining, such as I did with you people a couple of nights ago when I mentioned uh, a form uh, that the mind was ill. And, of course, it wasn't just you people, but I always assume that somebody else will finally read it. And I threw in a parenthetical aside. I said, I don't mean 
what ordinary people call mental illness. I was referring to the fact that I consider that the mind suffers from an illness, <clears throat> the illness being that it's responsible for itself, the illness being that it says that it's you, the illness being that the mind, if it's not looked into, says that it is totally responsible for itself, answerable to itself. I had, uh, in the last day or so, I mentioned uh, that in the writings, and I was going to say, I don't think I find, I think I forgot to put it in today, but I was going to point out about how unstable the mind is. But you understand if I was going to do that, or if I was, had written it just for you people tonight, I still would have made a parenthetical notation of saying, well, when I say the mind's unstable, I do not mean in the ordinary sense of men, one man accusing another of being mentally unstable. But I say that there is a, another glaring aspect of the mind that is never noticed. And it couldn't be a more salient, two more salient characteristics of the mind. And I say that the two, and they, to me they go together tonight, they just struck me together, is that the mind is infinite and infinitely unstable. And see, so if I had written that, or if I'd gotten it into a feature, if I ever do, I'll put a comma, and I'll put a parenthesis, and I'll say, I do not have, or I am not, however, using the term unstable regarding the mind in the same sense that ordinary men refer to a condition of being mentally unstable. Because what they mean, not in life, of course, is that whoever they're referring to as being mentally unstable is displays mental characteristics, verbal behavior that is outside the mainstream, that seems to be totally out of touch with what their peers consider to be reality. But you know I don't mean that because I have no interest. I don't, when I refer to humanity, I'm always referring to ordinary humanity by their own definition. Whoever the rest, whoever the six billion identifies ordinary, sane people, that's who I consider to be ordinary and sane. What else is there? Only an idiot would go, well, the rest of life, they don't know what they're doing. What they call ordinary and sane, they don't know. Anybody that says that, they don't know. Anybody that says that's not ordinary. I still don't know why I don't get the junctures like that and somebody fall out of their chair and have their moment of awakening. That you realize it's not a merry-go-round. It's a spiral. It's a three-dimensional spiral which is what I was getting at. The mind is infinite, and it is infinitely unstable. Now, last time I was mentioning, if you recall, I wrote a paper and spoke a good while on the fact that a common complaint with not only physical medicine, the field of medicine, but a complaint with the social medical sciences, so to speak, psychology, sociology, political science, is that no matter what treatments they give, someone is always, someone of, rep, of good repute, someone with credentials, is always standing up and saying, well, yes, now they're doing so-and-so. Now they're trying to uh, rehabilitate criminals in such and such way. Or, yeah, now they're trying to take children who are disciplinary problems in school and have learning disorders 
and they're doing so-and-so. And yeah, somebody says, well, we've had this kind of success for the time being. But somebody's always there with that and very constantly, even in the field of medicine. Somebody will stand up and say, well, yeah, they saved uh, you know, 20 people's lives by this new experimental treatment. But they hadn't gotten to the root of the problem. And I point out, no one ever notices that humans never get to the, quote, root of the problem. Unless it is something they did physically. That's the closest you can come to it. That a human tore down an engine put it back together, and it wouldn't start. And another human came up and said, well, you left out the timing chain. That, they got to the root of the problem. But it was a problem that was based upon things that another human, or that humans, had physically done. That's the closest there is. That someone can go back and find the error in, a, in an equation as to why they did not get the correct answer. When it comes to those things non-physical, I don't know how you can fail to see it. Because it's not an attack on humanity. It is a simple observation of fact. I say, well, it is simple. But I know how hard it is for the mind to see. But the mind, the human mind, never gets to the, quote, root of the problem. Now, to be truthful with you, I don't know what the root of the problem is. And you don't either. But, for the sake of conversation, we all know, we understand what people think it means. Because what, what they intend by saying, well, they, we're not getting to the root of problem. Yeah, we're having a lower recidivism rate of prisoners. Uh, the rehabilitation of criminals uh, is improving and the jail population is down somewhat. But we're still not getting to the root of the problem. And, of course, by that, they mean the root of the problem that causes people to be criminals. And then they'll mumble something about, well, economic conditions and poor childhood and uh, limited access to the opportunities. And no one ever says, wait a minute. Right here is somebody writing the history of Athens. Here it is, Confucius. Even before that, was writing out, observations having to do with life in China at the time, detailed, impartial, him being a kind of intellectual observation, and since recorded history, the, New, the Old Testament, everywhere you look, someone was pointing out immediately that they had problems, as they called it, societal problems, and that they were trying to deal with them, but that the forces that be, like the legislators, the emperors, the kings, the prime ministers, the princes, we're only dealing with the symptoms and we're not getting to the root of the problem. And no one notices, well, humans have been saying that for 5,000 years. And if you take, as I said, we all understand what it means. What they mean is we can't cure it. We can't stop it. And so obviously we hadn't gotten to the root. And no one notices you never get to the root. They don't notice that, so that's enough right there, but I'll carry on on our behalf. Even if someone saw that, which they don't. So why am I even going further? What kind of idiot am I? They do not see that no one ever gets there. 
And so thus they never get to the next stuff I was about to point out to you that you should already know, or at least you know I'm going to say it. They never get to the root of the problem because there is no root of the problem. There is no such thing as the root of a problem. We're disregarding for a moment the fact that there are no problems. But we all know that humans think there are problems and you in your bad moments. You don't even remember me saying this. You know damn well you got problems. I mean, the way that that sales clerk talked to you today, is, as many times as you've been in there, and now the thing is, am I going to write an anonymous letter to the president of Kroger and try to have her fired? Should I go to the manager there in person, or should I just go back and bitch slap her? Or, of course, people don't put this in words, or should I just sit here until further notice and spend a lot of my time fuming? Perhaps if I do it well enough, I can develop an ulcer and it'll bleed and explode and I'll die. And I can, <laughs> then I won't worry about the way she... Why is it not possible for the mind to even question that the other six billion people, people with higher IQs than me, most of them with more education than I have, well-read, they appear to be thoughtful, they say they're thoughtful, and every damn one of them. In fact, the more intellectual, the more educated, the more civilized they are, the more vigorously will they not along when it comes to these very, when it comes to the, those problems that are most identifiable as social problems. They will, more than anybody, will vigorously agree in theory that yes, we have got to do something about crime. We've got to do something about the underprivileged underbelly of our current society. We've got to uh, stop people from going astray before they go astray. We can't just keep putting people in prison or we can't just keep taking children once they reach high school and have to go back and teach them how to read. No, we've got to get to the root of the problem. There they are, high IQs, educated, doctoral degrees in education, sociology, psychology. And not one person, you know what I mean, but not one person. That is, there is nothing resembling a movement, a school, an attitude amongst the six million people over a period of almost 6,000 years of some sort of general, just a small, a minority conflicting opinion of all this that says, you know, I don't think we can get to the root of the problem. I don't think we know what it is. In fact, that's not exactly true. Every now and then I hear somebody say that, but it doesn't do any good because you know what happens? Then everyone else, the voices that reply go, well, all the more reason that we should apply ourselves to look for it. And the person goes, well, I guess you're right. You, know, you can't deny that. And so they all go back to this mood activity. They go back on a snark hunt. And nobody notices. And the other one, or what I was really getting to since... I know I've already mentioned this last time, and I mentioned it several years ago. But the other two things that came to my mind verbally, and a picture of it over a wide historical and geographical range connected to it, is what I said, that people do not notice that the mind is infinite. Uh, that's the first words that hit me, and I could put it another way that might be a bit more 
or a bit cruder, no one notices that the mind cannot stop. Which fits right in to there being no problems, to there being no roots of problems, since there are no problems. The mind, under ordinary conditions, which is, from one view, its greatest talent in the ordinary sense, is the mind goes out somewhere, goes off in a direction, and there is nothing innately to ever stop it. A man's thoughts will go along a certain line. A man's thoughts, a group of people, a whole historical epoch, like a whole group of people, like a whole society, but all the way from one man to groups of people, identifiable groups of people, their thinking about some matter will take off and there is nothing intrinsically to stop it. Now what happens, which is of no great consequence, but I always have to try to tidy things up for you. I don't know why. You never do for me. Well, there's dust all over my house. Does anybody? Oh, never mind. The kinds of limitations that happen are the same kinds of limitations that I always think of as being life's self-writing writing mechanism. It's life's homeostatic thermostat that people's a person's thinking. It could be one person is how it usually is. And his thinking may take off in a new direction. That this group of people, they're worrying over problem X. Maybe crime. That they say crime's increasing. And so they all, the, all the thinkers of their community, their tribe, their society, they work on it. And they discuss it. And maybe one guy, he starts having ideas that are a bit out of the, they're a bit unexpected which is what so-called social progress amounts to. Not just so-called social progress, what they call progress in the arts, which is funny. I don't, in effect, uh, that's not hard to get people, non-art lovers, to laugh. And say, how can you call it progress going from Rembrandt? You go, well, of course, that's old-fashioned because everybody looks like, you know, humans. You know, but, you know, what do you expect? That was back in the... You know, they were just coming out of the dark ages. What are you talking about? You know, back in the 1500s, 1600s, you know, people didn't know it better. They'd look at somebody, look at, a, you know, the prince over there or a naked woman, and they would paint it, and people would go by and go, oh, that's the prince. Or, oh, that's, what, that's that naked woman. Well, well, we got to overlook it. I mean, they were out of date. And so we move up, and then we get into, you know, through the Impressionists. You know, we got the beginnings of the 20th century, and the 21st, the 20th century, and you know, they begin to paint to where it doesn't look exactly like it, but you know that's supposed to be a person. But still, I mean, my God, it's 1890. But we finally get into the 20th century with both feet, get to Brock, Picasso, and then de Kooning. He paints one called, where it was, Woman Number Three, and it's mainly him slopping paint. You know, walking across the floor, sloughing paint. But if you look in a certain way, there are people that say, well, that's a general outline of a woman. But even that's pushing it. At any rate, I was just simply pointing out. I wouldn't, as you know, I'm not making fun of art. But the idea that there's progress in art or progress in music, that we've made progress going from uh, Bach to uh, Stravinsky. And, of course, those that generally like music would say, yes, we have. 
But almost ordinary people, for a second, if I did give them a good punch, I could say, you can't call that progress. I'm not saying, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Stravinsky or of abstract expressionism. But you can't call that progress. There's no way, that's not progress. It's not progress in a sense. Progress is that at the time of Rembrandt in Northern Europe, the average uh, life expectancy was probably you know, 39, 40 years old. And now, in Northern Europe, it's probably 75. Now, that's progress. And back in his day, people had to work seven days a week on an average of 14 hours a day. Now, in Europe, most of them are on a five-day week, and most of them get like two months off for vacation. Now, that's progress. Really. I'm not being funny. But it's something that's real. It is something that has enhanced life without any question. But you cannot look at music or art or literature and say that that's progress. It's change, and you may say that you like the new stuff better than the old stuff. What the hell do I care? Nobody knows. You can say you like it, and it's nobody's business. It's nobody's mature taste, but you cannot call it progress. It's just silly. That's all it is. It's ridiculous. And yet, they will go into other areas, get outside the arts, all you got to do is just step outside the arts. I used to ponder why they came up with the whole classification of the arts. I've never mentioned this to anybody. And it, I'm not going to try to describe it tonight. I just got through doing it, by the way, indirectly. Is that's why they did it. From one view. They needed, I'll tell you this much, they needed one area that can almost amount to, in times of desperation, a helpless kicking boy that they can take all the complaints that may be coming up or being presented to a person, and they can take it and dump it all on the arts. Like, well, what you're saying has some validity, sir, but you're picking on the wrong place. You should be picking on the arts. You should not be picking on religion. Or nowadays, politics. The idea that there is progress in anything outside of technology, that is, progress in any area that is not entirely based on things physical. To say that there's progress in matters non-physical, I don't know what to call it except just silly. And as I said, an ordinary person, I believe, I know I could, I could make them see what I meant for a second. That if they said that they, if I, if I asked them, if, they were, if we determined they were a music lover, and I said, would you consider it was progress as much, you know, no offense to Bach. The first might go, yeah, I loved it. And I said, would you consider that we had, that it's been progress in music to go from Bach into Mozart and then into the uh, later Romantics, at least we'll go that far, into Wagner, maybe even Stravinsky, Ravel. And they go, yes, it is progress. I like Bach, but I, we have made progress in music. I believe that without a great deal of effort, if they would try to listen, I go, that is not progress. Not if we're going to call progress extending life expectancy and reducing the amount of work it takes for a man to feed himself and his family. That is progress. He'd go, yeah. And I go, well, you know that the difference between Wagner's music and Bach's music, that is not progress in the sense, living 75 years of age today compared to 30 then the change of music from Bach to Wagner is not progress in the same sense. They would have to go, oh yeah, you're right. 
Because it's simply a matter of taste. That's what it amounts to. I, I could get them to agree to that. You know, especially if I said, hey, I agree with you. I think music has progressed, but I'm doing a survey, trying to get a straightforward intellectual answer from you. Uh, we can't call that progress. It's change. Change in taste, change in style. And you may like it better, but there's no way to objectively say it's progress. You can't look at a piece of box music and then look at Wagner's music. Let's say that they both, let's say it was a uh, violin sonata or just a piece for the piano. You cannot look at Bach's and then look at Wagner's and say that's progress. You could say the harmony is more complex. You could say it takes more dexterity or chops, as it's known amongst Wagnerites, to play his music than it does Bach. But there's no way to say it's progress. There is no objective criteria. And people, for a moment, go, yeah, you're right. They will never see it if you get outside the arts, is what I was off on the side. And senior waiting is one reason I see that they came up with this whole classification of the arts. Because people don't, do not mind having the arts attacked. If it comes to them having their religious views attacked, or to shift it over and attack the art of the world, like... We get off the idea that religion is in some way suppressing man or causing problems if some critic was making it. If the critic would drift off and go, well, of course, what started was, you know, damn music with obscene lyrics, art. There's no more than pornography hung in a fancy frames. Then the religious apologist will go, yeah, yeah, I agree with you with that. You know, if he'll get off of his subject, if he'll quit kicking his sow around, he don't mind you picking on the pigs in somebody else's yard. And I say that that's one reason we've got the classification of art. It's just like a pig that if anybody, when an ordinary person is trapped, when his favorite pastime, when his intellectual darling, such as religion or politics, is being attacked, if it can always be shifted over to art. That in some way, art, because art has always been historically blamed as eating away at the fringes of morality of every society. And so you can just always kind of shift your attention. Well, let's get off the subject that's embarrassing you, sir, making you uncomfortable, and let's pick on art. And everybody involved will go, good, that's where it belongs anyway. Because that's closer to the root of the problem. It's what, probably what's wrong with society now. It's all that goddamn rock and roll music now, stuff that's where I was no one sees that the mind has no innate limits it is infinite unless as I started to say that it is a self-regulating mechanism within a group of people that any sort of new thinking when the mind starts wandering off in new directions for a while the people may find it intriguing now I'm not talking about art let's say social theories how to handle crime then one guy in a society, some group somewhere, his thinking may become avant-garde. It may become, his theories become never tested, never thought of. And it may create a certain amount of intrigue. The powers that be for a while may say, well, that's worth their consideration. Perhaps we'll even try to implement a few gradually and see what happens. But if he keeps on and on, just things regulate themselves and finally... No, so that, you know, you're going too far. 
That may be, well, it is one of the illusionary reasons that I could say that people do not recognize that the mind is infinite. Running out of time, let me see if I can get to, as I said, I started to use other words than infinite, except it's the first way it hit me, and I always hate to throw out my firstborn. They're always good to me. I always love them. If I have to change the words, if I think, well, if I change them, other people might understand it, I will do it. I use the look on as being somewhat sort of ugly stepchildren. So I saw it as infinite. But the infinite is usually used in sort of a passive, I mean a positive sense. But what I'm intending as much as possible for this discussion is non-positive. That is that the mind is infinite and it is unstable. The mind cannot come to a conclusion. It's one of the real powers, I mentioned periodically, if you never think about it, it is one of the true powers. It is one of the reasons that make a certain field singular. And of course, the field I'm speaking about is mathematics. That is the only area in which anything resembling stability in the intellectual world and a lack of And that the, the, the infinite nature of the mind is reigned in. Now, I know there are questions of mathematics. I don't want to get into that kind of obscure stuff. Uh, well, the obvious one being, what's the world's biggest number? And then there are variations of that. And so there are things that intellectually slash philosophically cannot be answered, but they're childish, such as what's the world's biggest number? And whichever one you come up with, then the guy asking the question, of course, he adds one to it and says, no, you're wrong. So he adds one to it. Then you have to go back and spend another 10 years coming up with the next number. I know you wouldn't. You're not that dumb. If you think there hadn't been people that have done that before, you're mistaken, by the way. But there is no, there is no perception of what I'm saying of the mind being infinite, not in a positive sense, but in the sense that men cannot, in matters non-physical, as I said, mathematics is the closest thing, because it, it, it does not exist, and yet it is the one area in which infinity is really lacking, in which basic instability is no longer in play. Because if there's anything that's stable, it's mathematics. Chemistry is not. Chemistry changes. Physics is not. You would think, from one hand, that physics should be the most stable of intellectual pursuits because we're down dealing with the actual material that makes up reality. But, of course, we all know. First they say, okay, it's atoms, and they find something else, and they theorize after that, and then, damn, they didn't find it. Mathematics. Two plus two is always four. No matter where you go in the world, 2 plus 2 is 4. Is 2 plus 2 is 4 on good days, bad days, hot days, if it's got a hurricane, if the stock market's up, if it's down. Uh, no matter what religion you are, no matter what political persuasion, it's always the same. 
no matter how you look at it. It's always the same. With that exception, no one notices that the mind does not come, cannot come to a definitive conclusion. Now, we all know that people say that they have, such as a man say, well, I know there's a God, and I know he's the Christian God. I know he's the God that I, of the Catholic Church. And nothing you can say will convince me otherwise. I know it, I know it, I know it, I know it. I know it, and you can't convince me otherwise. I know it as well as I know I'm standing here. Sure, they can say that, but you know that that means nothing. The mind cannot come to a definitive conclusion, such as nobody can show you God, nobody can prove there's God, same with life after death, nobody can prove what the cause of crime is. Nobody can show it to you. Nobody knows what it is. Nobody knows the cause of any illness other than being alive, but nobody considers that. Being alive is not considered a sickness, unless you're mentally deranged. <laughs> and again, we're not, we're not using those people in our discussion. The mind cannot come to a definitive conclusion. Surely by now you see it without me going into my Baptist sing-song voice and trying to persuade you. Your mind simply cannot. And if you look at history, and remember, this is so far the interesting situation that I find useful. Out of six billion people on this planet, and I forget how many has been calculated as lived up to now, somebody calculated it, I forgot. Let's say 12 billion. Now, the 12 billion people that we estimate have lived during the recorded history of man. Not one out of 12 billion, or not any group, not one person ever got any interest going, has ever noticed that the mind of man cannot come to a definitive conclusion. For if they had, then the whole question, the whole situation, the whole problems they said of us continually not getting to the root of a problem, would it not take on a whole new complexion? If the mind cannot come to a definitive conclusion, that is, if the mind cannot come up to the root of a problem, get up to the radical foundation of a problem, how are we ever going to cure it? Where do we get off saying, well, that's an interesting theory. We may try that and see how it works on crime or poverty or this disease, this uh, psychological malfunction, this disorder. Well, maybe we'll see how, but it's obviously, that's not the root of the problem that you're dealing with. And no one, out of 12 billion people, no one's ever said, wait a minute. You know, I've been studying my mind, and I've been looking over history and looking how the people operate, and I realize that my mind, some guy, he turns around and says, the rest of his city, his neighborhood, you know, am I not a reasonable person? Am I not fairly intelligent? And they go, oh, yeah. And he says, well, I've been studying, just off of myself, constantly. I've been studying what's going on in my mind and listening to you people talk and everybody else, all you people. I, and I consider my peers and I respect your opinion, but I have noticed that my mind, this is the best way I know to put it tonight. I don't know how you would ever try to get an ordinary person to see this. I can't imagine them being able to because I can just barely put in words that I can stand to say. The guy would... My fictitious guy says, I have noticed 
whatever my mind applies itself to. And we're discounting technology again. We're discounting man-made works that you can go back and deal with like an engine that's been put together wrong, rebuilt wrong. But he says, when I look upon the non-physical affairs of man, the problems we have, the social problems, when I look upon any of these problems that we so often discuss here in Athens or Bombay or Peking, I have noticed that my mind, and now I'm sure it's true with everybody, there is something inherently lacking in my mind that I can think up all kinds of theories. I can think up theories of why we have crime. I can think up speculative treatments, approaches to try and stop crime. And you people can too. But I notice my mind never gets to one and goes, ah, and I know that there is the definitive answer. My mind, that thought, neither mine nor any of you people in Athens, you have never, my mind has never had a thought that I suddenly thought, there's what causes crime, and then there's what will cure it. It is such, to the mind, it seems to be such a mushy area, as I said, I cannot fathom that I could make another human, unless they were wired to do it anyway, and they would realize it when I said it almost instantly. I can't imagine taking another ordinary, super intelligent human being and getting their mind to realize it. Because it's like the mind goes out there as far as it can. And to me, it's kind of like mush. That's what I think about is infinity. It's just the mind gets out there and it just kind of bogs down, gets dizzy, it gets tired. It, It gets dark. The mind tries to follow an idea. And I would try to talk to an ordinary person about this. And it's like their mind would follow me and follow me. And then it's almost, when we get to the point that I was trying to get them to, to me, I bet their mind feels like, you know, this has been fun. It's like a, a day trip. We're out for a hike. But, you know, it, it's getting dark. We ought to get back. And they won't go any further. They can't go any further. And I say, no, come on. I want you to realize there's no end to this. The human mind is not arranged. That's not its purpose. Other than, as I said, aspects having to do with the physical world that are always related, directly or indirectly, to our survival. When you get past that, when you get outside that area, the mind is infinite. The human thought cannot come up, cannot conceive of, as we call it here, the root problem of anything. We cannot come up with the first cause of anything. We like to say, well, it's because of Zeus and all those guys up there, those invisible gods. We can't control them. They're the ones that, at least indirectly, control our lives. So we can't do anything about it. The mind cannot see in itself. It attributes it to gods. It attributes it to uncontrollable social factors, forces at play that we can't get a grip on. But nobody looks and says, wait a minute. It's the mind can't get a grip on anything that's conclusive. And then the mind looks out here and it criticizes groups of people. It criticizes the government, criticizes the current Caesar. It says, well, crime is increasing. And our new Caesar, Augustus, or maybe it was Aiken, South Carolina, number two, a little southern humor. Very little, wasn't it? <laughs> I liked it. Where was James Brown when they when Rome was burning? I thought we were talking about Greece. That's right. We weren't Caesars. I didn't mix metaphors. 
I miss mixed civilizations. <laughs> At any rate, the guy would say, or no one ever says, that it's the mind, it's the human mind that is mushy, it is infinite, it is unstable. I never get around to that one much, but do you have any idea why I mean now by unstable? And it's not really a criticism. Again, the instability of the mind, the, its lack of having innate boundaries, is how science and technology and all that is real progress in our life, is, that is how it was made possible. But when it gets off of physical matters, it, refu it cannot see that it doesn't know what it's doing. Which is, I know I, that's easy for me to say, but I'm trying to give you another view that to me is a bit more scientific, in quotation marks, is that the mind is infinite. It does not have the ability to reach definitive conclusions. But then it looks out, and as I started to say, a critic looked at the government, his fellow men, but he looked at the government probably first and say, well, crime's on the increase, and it's their fault. They won't get to the root of the problem. They'll arrest a few people, they'll cough a few heads, and they'll go, and things will calm down, then government will forget about it, and crime starts again. And it's just nobody can do anything about it. We can't ever come to a final, conclusive solution to the root of this problem. And nobody says, wait a minute. The fault's not out here. It's not that we can't find the root, or we're not trying to find the root, no, we can't cure it. It's that the mind is incapable. If there was a root, if there is a first cause, the human mind can't see it because even if it saw it, if there is such a thing as a first cause, if there is a root problem of crime, if the human mind walked up, he was walking out the street one day, a guy wandered outside of Athens, went out for a walk, and there it was, the root of crime. And he saw it. Do you understand? He couldn't recognize it. He might think, well, I've never seen that before. And he would start speculating. That is, his thoughts would start speculating. Well, it looks like so-and-so. No, let's see, I'll turn it over. Uh, I bet it's so-and-so. Wait a minute. I wonder if I put it on a muffin, if I could eat it. Or wait a minute, if I banged it out, hey, I could use that as a replacement fender on my brother's Ford. He got banged up. It's not. What I'm saying is a person, humanity never sees that it's not a matter that some group, that the government, some religious group, or that their fellow man cannot get to the root of this problem and finally cure it. It's that the mind can't get to the root of anything because the root would be a definitive conclusion. And the mind cannot, is not made to do that. It's, it's made to speculate. Which is, uh, one more time, is what makes progress in the physical world possible. It can speculate. The mind looks upon things and it does not see them as they are. As I put it to you a couple of weeks ago, it sees them as they could be. And therefore, it increasingly can treat, down near cure, diseases that one time were fatal, can build buildings that one time would have toppled over at that height, can build machines that would go so fast that no one could imagine it, few decades ago, it can do all those things by looking at something and seeing other possibilities. But then when it comes to trying to cure so-called problems, social problems, you understand that is not a benefit. And it says, well, this other group or the government is not getting the root cause. And the man saying that will not look at his own mind and go, wait a minute. 
my mind cannot see what's going on as it is. My mind sees out in the physical world things. Let's say the guy's in research and development. And he, and he might know. If I point out to him, he might realize that his bread and butter, he might realize that all of progress, human progress in the physical world, is based upon people like him having the ability that their mind can look at a situation, a problem in life, a challenge, a situation, having to do, bearing directly upon human survival and comfort. And his mind can look at it and see the possibility, see, not see it as it is, it's already that way. Somebody's already developed the technology this far, and he can look at it and go, wait a minute, what if we did so and so? When it comes to that, you understand, that's a great benefit. But then if you look at something that is not physical, crime, morality, anything that's non-physical, and the mind looks at it with that same attitude, with that being its same nature, that it does not see the situation as it is, it sees how it could be, other possibilities. Then is it any wonder, as men put it, we never get to the root of the problem? The problem won't stay still because the mind is fluid. The mind is infinite. The mind is unstable. And in one area, that is its prime talent. But then in another area, it turns it into silly putty. Now I stand, as opposed to 12 billion people historically, or 6 billion, if we're going to bring it down to contemporary time, and I say me, I can go ahead and include you. That we're trying to do this thing that people always call wake up, blah, blah, get to the bottom of it, things. Look at the position. Look how life is arranged. Look how the universe is arranged. That the very things right at the very root, the bare minimum, from my view and my experience, of the sorts of things you have to see that I've been describing for the last 60 minutes, I point out to you that, constructively speaking, out of 6 billion people on this planet, there's not another person that sees it that way. And it, it's not even that. It's not even that. It's not that they don't see it that way. Nobody ever conceives of it. It doesn't even cross their mind. Just for a moment. They never even think, well, there could be another explanation for something like the fact that all of human history, of all groups, it all starts out with stories about God, just instantly. Of course, the accepted wisdom, it seems to be permeating the genetics of every, all the other six billion people. That the obvious answer is, the omnipotence of God. He's built into us. And of course, the first thing, as soon as men become conscious, first thing they do is become worshipful, respectful of God. Okay, okay. You know, and the fact that it's silly. I mean, the fact that it's just meaningless to say that. And yet, out of that, no one says, wait a minute. Just for the hell of it, what other possibility could there be? And it doesn't happen. That's what I'm trying to get you to say. It happens one or two people here and there, as opposed to six billion people. 12 billion people historically that's never happened to, and you got the nerve. You got the flaming nerve to drive over here some nights and to sit there, not even took a shower, had the decency to shave, and you sit there and think, well, yeah, I'll be awake probably next week. That's not as hard as I thought it was years ago. Where do you get off with that attitude? Now, see, that's what I find helpful. I think one or two people got it. That, you know, the attitude, what I just said, you didn't realize I was being theatrical, I wasn't picking on you. But that attitude, that view of it, 
And so to speak, I know that my view, I, I hate to say this, but you know what I was about, to, that my view, let me say, is better, is closer to the truth, to understate it, than the other 12 billion people. I mean, it just is. I'm not going to tell them that. I wouldn't defend it. And if somebody said, no, it's not, I wouldn't answer. I understand. I know how life works. But it is. But then I'm faced with this. All right? I can see it. It's beyond debate. I just simply see it. And I see it much clearer than I can put in words anyway. But I see it. But I also realize that 12 billion people who've lived on this planet, bigger men, stronger men, in a sense, smarter men probably on IQ tests than me, no one's ever seen it that way. And so I got the nerve. And not just the nerve, but another way to look at it is then sometimes I'm moping around the house or drop a glass, to use my classic examples, do something like that and think, boy, after 40 or 50 years struggling to wake up, I turn right around and drop a glass. Now, I know exactly why. It didn't, it didn't slip out of my fingers because my hands were soapy. It slipped out. I dropped it because I was fucking asleep. I was out of town. I was out of my mind. And at those moments, knowing that that does no good, now I understand it. But at least those moments, if you get, surely somebody get it. At those moments, then I can think, well, 12 billion people have lived on this planet and are living, and not one of them has ever seen life, so to speak, as I do, and I know that my view is better for me. I know that it's closer to the truth. So I dropped a glass. So I took a nap for 10 seconds again. So I have to say the rest. It's like, what do I want from me? 12, 12 billion people are pushing against me, so to speak. 12 billion people, their minds... Does everybody get it? You understand I'm not talking about me and I'm not giving you an excuse or an rationalization. But to realize that that is a fact. That a person, and of course I'm not the only one on the planet, but a person, they begin to, can begin to see for themselves what life's about. Which is just plain and simple. It's right in front of everybody. You can't get away from it if you tried. You don't have to go looking for the truth. You're stepping in it. It's all over you. It's everywhere. And to realize that 12 billion people, more or less, have been here and not realize it. I find that useful. It's not theory. It's not philosophy. It's not me making excuses for myself. Nor is it me trying to bolster my image of, well, shows how special I am. Nah, none of that. I find it useful to realize Periodically. And every time I come up with a new example, in a sense, I realize it anew. So I wish you'd find your own. Because you've got a better chance of then the usefulness of it striking you. I mean, the news is full of it. You hear it in the air all the time. You know I can pick up lines from anywhere. Leading one of our major political figures. I wrote about this from one of those news features. He and his advisors say his biggest problem with the American voter is that the voters really don't know the real Phil Lex. And his opponents have picked up and said, well, that may be. 
But he's got a bigger problem. Looking at his record and listening to him, we, his opponents, have decided that Phil doesn't know who the real Phil X is. And those who find politics, that kind of verbal byplay, to be a spectator sport, they're licking their chops and you know, trying to spur them both on like a couple of fighting cocks. And nobody sees what's going on. Nobody takes that line. Anybody's interested, they take sides like they shouldn't pick on Phil like that. Or they say, hey, he deserves it. But nobody stops and ponders what a curious notion. I mean, it's curious enough to say that Phil X or any human doesn't know who he is. And then to say other people don't know who he is. And he's out there and he's spending millions of dollars on television commercials. He's out 20 hours a day shaking hands saying, hello, I'm Phil X. Hello, I'm Phil X. And you know, here's a card. Here's everything I believe. And here's pictures of my family. It tells you how much money I give them and where I sent them to school. And he's pushing them on people, insisting they take it. And he says, my problem is people don't know who I am. And then somebody else says, well, hell, you don't know who you are. And he bristles at that. And some other people cheer and say, that's true. And nobody stops and thinks, is this not curious? And out of six million people on this planet, no one steps out of line and goes, that's weird. And even weirder, in a sense, is to realize that one person to step out and go, is that not only weird, but it's super weird because if I wasn't stopped right this second and stepped away from the crowd, I normally never notice it. That it seems unweird to me. That concludes this talk. Be sure to visit us at jancox.com where you can search through 3,000 talks for topics of interest or just leave us a message.